Welcome back to the Complete History of Coffee, Episode 4, Satan's Drink. Grab your favorite caffeinated beverage and let's get started. Today, I am drinking Cafe Verona and I'm pairing that with a chocolate croissant. I chose Verona to help us with our shift into Europe, as Italy held the first coffee shop in Europe, and the croissant because it will feature later in our narrative, although not in the context of France or even Italy. So I made this coffee as a cupping. So for those of you who are wondering what a cupping is, it's where you put the coffee grounds into the cup and then you pour the hot water on it to be brewed. Um, so the first step right now, it's been sitting in here for a couple of minutes. I'm going to actually smell it. So when I'm smelling it, I'm getting a little bit of um, chocolatey, a little bit of um, sweet kind of roasty smell. And then we're going to actually push that back with a spoon because there's a layer on top and it's called breaking that top layer. Let's see. So it really comes out and it's very kind of acidic in the smell. There's a really sweet kind of smooth. I'm still getting a little bit of the roasty. There's a little bit of nutty now too. The next step now we can actually take some of those coffee grounds, kind of put them off to the side and then you want to go ahead and just slurp it and you're going to get a little bit of coffee grounds that's okay but we're going to slurp it and see what we get um let's see so sort of similar to what we we're getting with the smell we're actually tasting it i'm definitely getting a little bit more of the roasty um, a little bit of acidic is actually pretty smooth, though, overall. Um, I'm not really getting as much of the chocolate as I did from the smell, though. Let me try pairing it with the chocolate croissant and see what that does for us. Chocolate croissant, I feel like the bread kind of mellows out the coffee a little bit. But the chocolate definitely brings out a lot of that sweetness and a lot of the chocolatey aspects of the coffee. So I definitely would highly recommend the Cafe Verona with a chocolate croissant. A legendary account from 1105 features a man named Drogel, who was born to Flemish nobility in the French county of Flanders. His father died before his birth, and his mother while in childbirth, leaving him an orphan. He went through extreme penance as a teenager to atone for his personal guilt, which he felt around his mother's death. He was destined to be the chosen one, and to become the most powerful of all the Jedi, but instead betrayed them, choosing Dark Roast over Light Roast, and became Darth Roaster. Oh wait, I've got the stories a little mixed up. Uh, Drogo actually chose a holy life in the church, later becoming a pilgrim, traveling to Rome multiple times, and even meeting with the Pope. Later in life, he developed an illness, which drove him to be cloistered to a nearby church. But why is this story important? Who is Drogel? Well, as it turns out, he was actually a saint. But not just the saint of cattle, orphans, and get this, unattractive people. He was also the saint of coffee. Perhaps this is due to the region in France which he is from, Hainaut, which produces chicory, a product which is often used with or even in place of coffee. 
Another possibility is linked to the story of the fire, which took place during the period in which it was cloistered. The story goes that the villagers attempted to get Drogo to leave his room in order to save him from the fire, which was burning down the church. But he vowed to stay a hermit till the day he died, and so determined God would either save his life or let him die. Apparently, God decided to save him because, according to the story, he survived the fire unharmed. So maybe it was this link between fire and roasting coffee, or perhaps it was his ability to be in multiple places at once, which hooked coffee house owners. Or it could even have been due to the warm cup of water, which he had every day. An article I read online by Tim Bruno suggested he might well have been linked to coffee because of his survival on barley, another product which is substituted at times for coffee. I open with this European coffee legend to help us transition from coffee story from the east to the west. But before we jump continents, we need to see how coffee made this transition into a product grown around the world. Coffee helped to create a great trade network between the East and the West. Until the 1540s, coffee was only sold by Ethiopian coffee farmers who grew wild coffee seeds alongside other crops. Even after Yemen took control of coffee exporting, much of the coffee grown in the world was by these local farmers in Ethiopia. In order to trade their product, they had to rely on a fragmented trade system to get their coffee to the port of Almaka, or Mocha as we will call it. To trade their coffee required travelers on mule paths from highlands to lowland areas, exchanging dried coffee cherries for other goods like cloth and foodstuff. Broken up trade then got the coffee to the market of Beit al-Faki, where it sat in a warehouse before being transported by camels to Mocha. Well, it was the capacity of transportation and trade in Yemen, which led to storing coffee in warehouses for long periods of time. This is intentionally done for many coffees today in a process known as aging, which helps to develop the coffee flavor further. It was usually banyans who controlled the trade of coffee and credit networks. Coffee trade led to great financial gain for the leaders of the Zaydi sect. Zaydism is a branch of Shia Islam prominent in Yemen. After the expulsion of the Jews from Yemen in 1638, the Yemeni Zaydi state held the sole monopoly on coffee. As early as 1618, the British East Indian Trading Company was taking part in coffee trade out of Mocha to Persia and Mughal India. However, it would take another 30 years for coffee to make its way to England. Even as the spice trade was growing during this period of time, the Islamic world was able to keep coffee rather exclusively to their own region. This seems to have been less of a concern about holding on to coffee and more of an issue of supply. Coffee at this time was being produced by farmers in the highlands of Yemen who struggled to keep up with the demands for coffee. Accounts from European traders such as Jean de la Rogue, whose father introduced coffee to Marcel, Talk of waiting six months to fill one ship out of the port of Mocha in 1709 and 1711, similar to a Dutchman who waited a year for enough coffee for one voyage. Around the same time, coffee shipments reached 12,000 to 15,000 tons per year. 
What is interesting is how this number more or less remained the same for the next 120 years, but went from producing most of the coffee grown in the world to only 3%. If the rest of the world wanted coffee, they would have to begin growing it outside of Yemen, which will become the case as coffee spreads around the globe over the next century. Coffee culture grew in the Islamic world. Coffee houses became known as schools of the wise. This trend will continue as we follow coffee's journey into the West, where they became known as penny universities in England. But it may be important to look at why this spread into the West occurred. In a rich and tantalizing door, Jadef Regula poses the question of why coffee was able to spread with such success, even though it has such a strong bitter taste. While perhaps unknown for certain, it seems possibly due to the difference in taste based on different regions. While Europeans often preferred coffee with sweetener or milk, people in the Middle East may have developed different tastes and were not bothered by the bitter taste of coffee. As we discussed last time, the Port of Mocha was the primary port of coffee from the 15th through the 18th centuries primarily shipping coffee to other countries outside of Yemen. Mocha remained important in the world coffee market throughout the colonial era until the early 19th century. However, its decline can be seen as a result of two reasons. The first was a shift in Islamic society from coffee to tea, while the second and likely larger reason was the loss of monopolization over coffee production by Yemen. This latter change occurred sometime in the 17th century, after a pilgrim to Mocha was able to smuggle coffee beans out. His name was Baba Budin, a man revered by both Muslims and Hindus. He supposedly snuck the beans out of the country through the port of Mocha by either strapping them to his abdomen or hiding them in his beard. He is said to have taken seven beans with him, seven exactly, as the number seven is sacred to Islam. He then brought the beans to India, with the first coffee trees in India being grown at Baba Budangiri, a shrine named after the revered pilgrim. Most coffee grown around the world today is descendant of Baba Budin's contraband coffee, and his name lives on in the world of coffee as the name for many cafes and blends of coffee. On a side note, another coffee legend also appeared in the historical record for the first time around this point. Kaldi and his goats first appeared in 1671 in a coffee treaty written by Antonio Fausto Neroni, a man from Lebanon. In 1616, the Dutch were able to get their own coffee tree by transporting one from Aden back to Holland. Aden, a city in Yemen, as you will remember, was the first place to officially sanction coffee. The Dutch began planting coffee in Ceylon in 1658, by which point they had begun coffee cultivation out of Malabar. Eventually, the Dutch brought coffee to Java in 1699, which would grow into a massive port of coffee, even to this day. Eventually, the Dutch planted coffee trees in Sumatra, Celebes, Timor, Bali, and through much of Dutch-controlled East Indies. With the Dutch port of Java exporting coffee at a lower price, Mocha's port ended operation in 1869. However, Javanese coffee was of a poor quality, 
being grown as part of a labor tax to their lord in Java. So it did not get held at such a high standard. However, the low price of Java's coffee and the higher quality of mocha was put together to create a blend known as Mocha Java. During the 17th century and early 18th century, the Dutch were purchasing coffee from Mocha, while the French bought most of theirs from Alexandria. However, after the 1720s, coffee was being produced by the Dutch in Java and in the Caribbean by the French. The decline in coffee sales less drastic than might be assumed, however, as Egypt's ruler, Muhammad Ali, still sought to take over control of Yemen for its wealth from coffee. England stepped in, however, and seized the Yemeni port of Aden in 1839. This precautionary reaction to protect their trade interest led Aden to be established as a free port in 1850. This free trade meant no tariffs or dealings with customs, which, along with warehouses and deep water keys, led Aden to become the primary coffee port for the nation. With all of this in mind, the decline of the Red Sea coffee trade might be assumed as a result of Western influence, but it was actually from parts of the world further to the east. Tea grew in popularity in India and Iran, two countries with large Muslim populations. Coffee sales declined. The same would even happen in Egypt, where local grown tea became the primary drink for the country. Before we go any further, let's go back and see what led Westerners to grow an interest in coffee. Even before entering the West, Europeans began interacting with coffee during the 16th century. The first definitive account we have from Europe comes from Leonard Rauf, a German botanist and doctor who mentioned coffee in his book from 1583, Travels into the Eastern Countries. He described coffee as a, quote, drink they call trabe, that is, almost as black as ink, and very good in illnesses, especially of the stomach, end quote. This account would be one of the first, but certainly not last, of coffee's argued medical benefits, similar to that of tea and chocolate. The Italian physician and botanist Prospero Alpini wrote about coffee in his 1591 De Medicina Egyptiorium Libri Cortium and included the earliest illustration of a coffee plant in his 1592 De Plantis Aegypti Liber. Further mentions of coffee in European literature around 1600 include Linschuten's Travels, referred to as Kaua, Shirley's Travels as coffee, and Captain John Smith's Travelogue, calling it Kaffa. By the 17th century, Europeans became very fascinated with coffee. Interest in the drink supposedly even reached the Pope Clement VIII, who tried coffee before his death in 1605 and was asked to ban it by his priest. Most accounts have him stating, quote, why this Satan's drink is so delicious. It would be a pity to let the infidels have exclusive use of it. We shall fool Satan by baptizing it and making it a truly Christian beverage. End quote. In 1610, the Englishman Sir George Sandys, who visited Turkey and said they were, quote, chatting most of the day, end quote, over coffee, describing coffee as, quote, black soot and tasting not much unlike it, end quote. And 
quote, helpeth, as they say, digestion and procureth alacrity, end quote. An Italian composer, Pietro della Vella, wrote about coffee during his visit to Constantinople in 1614, following a heartbreak which led his doctor to recommend a trip abroad. He described it as a magical drink consumed after meals with the ability to awaken a person's body and spirit. In 1685, the French coffee merchant Felipe Sylvester Defoe published The Manner of Making Coffee, Tea, and Chocolate. Felipe's works are significant as he was the first to describe the properties of coffee, mentioning coffee in relation to bunchum which was in works by the 15th century Persian physician Muhammad ibn Zachariah al-Razi. There is debate today over what Buntram was being referred to by al-Razi, with some believing it to have been a root. However, if al-Razi was describing coffee, it would be the earliest medical account of coffee in history. At the end of the century, Antoni Galan translated parts of Al-Jazari's work in his own work on coffee, and in 1826, another work was published in Paris, which used the first two chapters of Al-Jazari's book. As we will see shortly, many believe coffee first arrived in Europe through the Turkish invasion of Hungary in 1526 through the Battle of Moas, reaching Vienna within the next year. Whether if this is true or not, coffee reached Malta through Turkish slavery, and the first coffee to enter Europe, not under Turkish control, was through the port of Venice in 1615. Venice obtained the first coffee due to their extensive trade with North Africa, and by 1645, Venice hosted the first coffee house in Europe, if we don't include those in Malta under Ottoman control. Coffee was seen as a Muslim drink in Christian Europe. Some referred to it as, quote, made by infusing the powdered berry of a plant that flourished in Arabia. Native men consumed this liquid all day long and far into the night with no apparent desire for sleep, but with mind and body continuously alert. Men talked and argued, finding the hot black liquor a curious stimulus, quite unlike that produced by fermented juice of grape, end quote. This representation shows there were some within European Christendom who saw coffee as an Islamic equivalent of wine used by communion. Clearly, there was a Christian-centric bias here, as Islam actually has no direct equivalent to the Eucharist. In any case, coffee houses in Europe became linked with socializing, gossip, entertainment, learning, debate, politics, and revolution just like coffee houses in the Middle East. In short, they came to represent places of communication and change. France became addicted to coffee, with authors like Dufault and Jean de la Rogue writing on the subject. The first coffee house in Paris was opened in 1672, and it was Rogue's book, Voyage de la Arabie Herose, which swept across Europe with major popularity. In 1683, a major battle in European history was fought, one which turned the tide of the Christian world against the Turkish Empire. While the battle itself plays little significance in our story, it does provide the coffee necessary for early European coffeehouse culture. This clash between East and West was the Battle of Vienna. According to some versions of events, following the Turkish defeat at the battle, Austria became home to the third coffee house open within Europe. 
While Austria may not have been the first to open a European coffee house, they were, and some argue are still, the king of coffeehouse culture in Europe. The first Austrian coffee house was made possible from coffee taken from Turks after this battle. Vienna was the capital of the Holy Roman Empire. One of the first European coffee houses and the first in Austria was opened by Jerzy Frankenzek Kulczycki, a man of Ukrainian origin who opened the country's first coffee house in Austria. The coffee beans he used to open his coffee shop were gifted to him by the King of Poland, John III Sobieski. He named his shop Hof zur Blurren Plescher, or House Under the Blue Bottle, and it quickly became a popular spot in the town. Jezere would serve customers mortar ground coffee in Turkish attire, adding a flair of foreign mystique and local popularity. His coffee house closed down shortly after his death in 1694. But until recently, there was a Kolchitsky feast every October in which all coffee houses in Vienna put up a portrait of Jersey. There's also a statue of him in, in Kolchitsky Street. His popularity comes from both his heroic defense of Vienna against the Turks and by introducing coffee culture to Europe. However, similar to our earlier legends, Jersey has an alternative story in history. Some who believed him to have spent two years in an Ottoman jail and, as a result, learned what coffee was, later tricking his superiors into giving him a mound of what seemed like useless sour beans. While there is perhaps a potential for a crossover in these versions of events, what is important for our story is the introduction of coffee to Austria. For any coffee drinkers out there who prefer their coffee with cream or sugar, you can thank Jersey for the innovation of adding milk and sweetener to coffee. The Viennese style of coffee drinking utilized a chart with different shades to indicate the amount of milk a person wanted in their coffee. Weiner Melange is a typical style of coffee in Vienna, being mixed with hot foamed milk and water, similar to a cappuccino. And England and France, there's a drink known as a Café Vienna, which can be ordered in America as an espresso campana, which is whipped cream and espresso, instead of foamed milk. However, ordering a Weiner Melange, or Viennese Melange, today in Vienna will get you an espresso and whipped cream, which would actually be a Franzenskainer, or Franciscan monk, named so after the brown color of the drink, which resembles the robes worn by Franciscan monks. One pastry, which is often paired with coffee, was said to have also been created after the Battle of Vienna as well. That pastry being the croissant. The croissant, if you follow the Austrian version of events, was not originally French, but was actually created in Vienna. Getting its crescent shape from the Ottoman flag as a symbol of Ottoman defeat. Bagels may also have originated from the Battle of Vienna, commemorating the victory by being shaped like the stirrup, the part of the horse saddle Fico. Like so much in history, it's hard to know where croissants and bagels actually originated. Similarly, next episode, we will take a second look at the validity of the stories of Pope Clement and Jerzy Kolczycki. This show was written and produced by me, Ara Zaffer. If you have not already, please consider supporting this podcast series on Patreon. This episode, we will be giving away a custom History of Coffee mug to one of our Patreon members. 
Make sure to join our community on social media at the Complete History Podcast Series. If you would like to contact us, you may message us through social media or at our email at thecompletehistorypod at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you listen to this podcast on. And make sure to share it with your friends, family, co-workers, and even random people you don't know. Maybe just go up to a random person with no context and tell them to check out this podcast. To close, here's a quote from Donna A. Favors. It's amazing how the world begins to change through the eyes of a cup of coffee. Thank you for listening. Till next time, for more on coffee history.